Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome again to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. We come to you through four media channels, here at Blog Talk Radio, through our online newsletters, via our magazine, and now video channel. They are now all available to you at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Each month, we touch more than one million small business leaders through our various channels. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are carefully chosen for their expertise or experience. They do not pay to be on this program, but rather our editors and readers identify them. We also identify the topics of possible interest for our audiences. If you have any suggestions or particular topics you want us to cover, please email us at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Tonight's program, like all our efforts, have a wide diversity of guests talking about the topics you want to hear. Today's program is a departure from our usual broadcast because we're going to talk about holiday movies and what they mean to us and why they mean so much to us. We're also going to talk about writing, how to do it, both in terms of fiction and in terms of business writing and reaching your whatever audience you want, be it the public, your internally, or just family. We have two very special guests, and we hope you'll enjoy it. John, are you with us? I am. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, John, we always ask our guests first to say a little bit about their personal background before we get into anything else. So sure. uh, pl- please, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, um, I'm 52 years old, uh, and I'm sort of in my second career. I began uh, trying to be an actor. That was my first great love. And uh, I did that mostly as a stage person uh, into my mid-30s. And then that's when I made the transition to writing about film, which brings me to your show. <laughs> um, and as you um, know, I've had uh, six books published in the last uh, 13, 14 years or so. And um, I've sort of, uh, they sort of made a progression. I began with a book called And You Thought You Knew Classic Movies, which was my sort of dipping my toe in the waters of this kind of work. It's my uh, film trivia quiz book, um, and it's sort of my, I call it my stocking stuffer book. But it gave me the confidence to write more uh, in terms of film criticism from that, and I next wrote 100 film performances you should remember but probably don't. Sort of small essays on these great performances that I love that didn't get enough attention. And from there, I kind of upped the ante uh, with a book called Screensavers, 40 Remarkable Movies Awaiting Rediscovery, 
which I wrote longer pieces about five great films from each of the major genres. And uh, again, I found that by this point that my essential subject was writing about the great, underrated, neglected, overlooked films of Hollywood's golden age, meaning that everyone knows about Casablanca and The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind and so on, but that there were hundreds of other really wonderful movies that had fallen by the wayside or had never gotten the attention they deserved. And I continued that work in a book called Screensavers 2. The one book that doesn't quite fit the mold of mine is uh, my Tennessee Williams book called Tennessee Williams and Company, which focuses solely on the Tennessee Williams movies, and in particular, the 11 actors who appear in more than one of the films. So, um, and then, uh, and you thought you knew classic movies. The quiz book has just come out again in a slightly revised edition this past year. So that's basically where I've been going since um, the late 1990s and uh, wanting to continue uh, with this kind of work. And again, sharing my enthusiasm for the great uh, underrated works of Hollywood's golden age, primarily. Well, um, I have a couple of your books, so I'm a fan of yours. Oh, why, thank you. (laughs) um, uh, uh, This program... Uh, is being broadcast on on Christmas night. So what I thought we might do is talk about the classical Hollywood Christmas uh, films. And uh, we all know uh, uh, the one with Jimmy Stewart. uh, But um, uh, in in your view, well, first, uh, can we talk a little bit about how Hollywood used to produce specific movies for Christmas weeks? and a little bit of background, and then go from there? Well, it's interesting. Um, of course, you mentioned, uh, or referred to, rather, It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. And when we look back at what we tend to think of as the classic holiday movies, there is quite a cluster of them that came out in that post-war era, which I guess is not really a surprise, meaning uh, we had just won World War II, and there was, I guess, such a feeling of celebrating the things that had been fought for, that feeling of home and family and America and possibility. And I think that comes through in that period of Christmas movies. It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, Bishop's Wife, Come to the Stable. They're all from that period. And I think the reason they've lasted and that that period seems so rich still is that they all had such strong emotional undercurrents. And I think something like It's a Wonderful Life is so uh, potent for so many people is because Jimmy Stewart really takes us to some real places, some real uh, unhappiness, some real pain. And so that happy ending is so earned. We really feel like we've been through the depths with this man. We've experienced his despair, his you know, virtual uh, suicide on on the uh, bridge. And when he comes back at the end, we really feel we've experienced this man's life, and it's a very powerful experience. Now, to a lesser extent, in Miracle on 34th Street, also a wonderful movie, not quite as emotionally intense, but again, you have um, a central figure played by Maureen O'Hara, who is someone who's been bruised by life, who has a cynical outlook based on her divorce, and she's transmitted that to her little second-grade-aged daughter, Natalie Wood, of course. And again, we watch um, a transition of someone sort of coming back, um, sort of 
through the through the um, knowing Mr. Chris Kringle, played so beautifully by Edmund Gwen, who won an Oscar for it, um, they sort of make that transition back to believing in the possibility of happiness. And again, we experience the emotions. It's not just the fantasy of it. It's not just the charm and the comedy. It's the emotions, and that's what keeps. Those movies from that period, you know, watched by not only the people who remember them when they came out, but who passed them on to their children and grandchildren, and they do have a staying power. And uh, so that kind of is what I would call sort of the golden age of the holiday movie. Are you there? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, let's move a little bit. In that same period, you had Holiday Inn and, of course, White Christmas. Um, people always forget that White Christmas was in Holiday Inn rather than uh, uh, than in White Christmas. Right. Um, you know, as we as we move forward, uh, and just a quick aside, um, Edward Gwen also played in what I think is one of the most underrated science fiction uh, movies, Them. And I thought oh was, yes, I thought he was extremely credible in that one. Yeah, um, he really was a wonderful actor, but then when you get that one role that defines you, people tend to forget you ever did anything else. <laughs> yes, and, and in his case. Well, now, that's the 40s. Let's move into the 50s. I can't think of a, a movie uh, in that period that has the staying power. What do you think? Well, um, of course, it came from England, but that's the version of A Christmas Carol that seems to be the one people like best, including myself. Of Alistair Sim. Alistair Sim, yeah. That seems to be the definitive film version. Uh, so that, again, it's outside of Hollywood, but that's a 50s film. An interesting choice, although it's unexpected, it would be, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I say it, but it's true, is uh, Stalag 17 from 1953, which is, of course, a war movie set in a German prisoner of war camp starring William Holden, who won the Oscar for that film. But it's easy to forget how important Christmas is in that movie. The climax is the Christmas celebration in the barracks of the camp, you know, they decorate their tiny little tree with their dog tags. And it's in that sequence, the climax, in which they unmask the informer, who, uh, the villain of the piece. And so, essentially, it truly is a Christmas movie, although it doesn't sound like it would be one. Now, of course, you mentioned White Christmas, which is 1954. It's not as good as Holiday Inn, which was from 1942, and it's not exactly a, a remake or a sequel, but it borrows so much, it might as well be. Um, people, of course, have very fond feelings for this movie. I've never particularly cared for it, but... Um, Neither I think have I. It was already, yeah, I think it was already a, a piece of nostalgia in 1954, because, like you said, the song was actually from Holiday Inn, so just the song alone and the title, people were already feeling nostalgic and in that kind of... It's kind of a comfort food movie, even though, like I said, I, I don't think it's particularly good, and I'd much rather watch Holiday Inn um, if, if given the choice. So, But that one, for whatever reason, has had that staying power, and I think it is the familiarity of, of like I said, it was nostalgic from the word go. <laughs> well, i tell you, a movie that really affected me, have you ever seen a Holly in, The Holly and the Ivy? Yeah, so, yeah, that is. Yeah, that is a good one. That, that used to play more often. I haven't seen that one on television in quite some time. Have you? No, I haven't. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, my so father, I just thought that was a terrific movie. Yeah. 
I wonder why it, uh, you never know what goes on with why things play and they don't and the rights and all those uh, other elements that we don't necessarily hear about. Right. Um, there is, well, look, there is, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you first. Okay. Um, there's one I would like to mention that people don't often uh, hear too much about that I, it might even be my favorite of them all. Um, it's a movie called Remember the Night from 1940. It's with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And it definitely qualifies as a Christmas movie, and uh, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's uh, about a shoplifter played by Barbara Stanwyck who's arrested and jailed, and McMurray is the DA, and she's going to be jailed over the Christmas holiday, and he finds out that, like him, she's from Indiana, so he offers to drive her home to her mother for the weekend, and he'll pick her up on the way back after he's seen his family. But when they get to her family, her mother has no interest in ever seeing her again, so she's got nowhere to go. So he takes her home to his family. And this is where the, move, the main part of the movie takes place. And basically it's about this sort of, you know, hard-boiled dame, this tough gal, um, sort of thawing out under this uh, wonderful family <laughs> sort of hospitality. They take her in, and she, of course, falls in love with McMurray, she has fun. It's charming, romantic. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story. And again, Stanwyck gets to make this wonderful transition to this sort of the sweet, wonderful woman underneath all the uh, sort of cynicism and all the hard knocks that have been accumulating. And uh, so I always highly recommend that one. And that's that's a show on Turner Classics, and it's on DVD. So I think that one's um, on its way to perhaps joining the elite club of the Christmas classics. It's certainly, uh, it's time has certainly come. Well, let's talk a minute about Barbara Stan Stanwyck because the Turner Classic Movie is featuring her, featuring her this uh, this month. Uh, uh, probably one of the better actresses to come at, uh, to Hollywood. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And she had uh, staying power. You know, she starred in movies for nearly 30 years, which was quite extraordinary in that age where they often didn't let you, you know, if you got to age 40, that was something, and she actually was still starring in movies at the age of 50. And she seemed to hit most of the genres. She really seemed to have the versatility. And, of course, I mentioned Fred McMurray. They, of course, after the movie I mentioned, four years later did Double Indemnity, one of the classic film noir pictures of, of all time. And she's got the tearjerker Stella Dallas, and of course the wonderful comedies, The Lady Eve and Ball of Fire. So she really kind of did it all. She's in a great western, uh, one of my all-time favorite westerns that I wrote about in my book Screensavers Two, called The Furies from 1950. Yes. It's almost like King Lear set on the on on a ranch, and uh, she and Walter Houston are both uh, sensational in it. And I think. Probably the key to why we're still talking about Barbara Stanwyck at this date, the late date, is that she was very natural. And so most of her work has a kind of timeless quality. She seems, you know, realistic, honest. She, there's nothing sort of showy or over-glamorized about her. There's that genuine quality shines through from the early 30s, like I said, through her television years. So um, people still respond to that, you know, she's the real deal. Well, let's move forward now to, to the 70s and the 80s. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but the, the Christmas uh, movies I've seen, um, 
in that period. I can't remember. I can't give you one that I remember from that period. <laughs> well, the one from that period that does seem to have this kind of staying power we're talking about, and the one that people do remember as fondly as some of the previously mentioned titles, is A Christmas Story, which is already 30 years old, 1983. Um, that one, but uh, I'd be hard-pressed to, to name another one that I think has caught on in quite that way. So, uh, and also, as you get older, perhaps you're less interested in discovering new Christmas stories, and you're already kind of attached to the ones you associate with your childhood and your family and maybe specific Christmas holidays you remember. And so I think, at least for me anyway, I don't know that I'm act actively looking for, you know, Christmas movies. I already have sort of have my sort of repertory in my head, <laughs> And I've got enough to deal with, and that when it comes around to the next December, I'm already set. So that's just, you know, habit. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Christmas movies, families used to go to movies together. They no longer do that. You have movies for the young people, who are the majority yeah. of the audience, apparently, in the movies today, and you have the older people. People don't seem to go to movies together anymore like they did for the shared experience. Am I yeah. wrong on that? Yeah, I guess that is certainly, of course, it's gotten more and more difficult because, you know, I guess you could say beginning with television when there were, the options got greater in terms of how you can entertain yourself. And now it's, it's with not only just television in general, but the hundreds of channels and the pay channels and, of course, the Internet and all the options that are there, you can be so specialized in what you're seeking out, but there's very little, like you said, that's sort of uh, communal, whereas, um, like I said, in, certainly in the 30s, if you were going to the movies, everyone was going every probably every week, and they were all seeing the same movies, and... And I think they all went to everything in a way that, like you said, they're they're so targeted now for very specific audiences. And, you know, in December you get a lot of adult movies because of, you know, the Oscars coming up and they all push them at the end of the year so people will remember them. But throughout the year it does seem like mostly everything is aimed at, you know, little kids, all the animated films, and the sort of action blockbusters aimed at, you know, I guess, teenage boys so you can feel if you're an adult movie goer eager to go out to the movies you can feel like nobody cares that what you want about what you want to see and uh yeah it can be very frustrating well uh, let's let, uh, let's talk about the the animation films that uh, are coming out i mean um uh what is it frozen is the current yeah uh, uh, yeah the latest do you think they have the ability to become classics? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I don't have little kids, or I don't have grandchildren, so I, I don't have to see any of them unless I want to. Uh, I, and I could, I certainly think that some of the ones in the last 20 years certainly be classics. In fact, some of my favorite movies of the last uh, 10 or 15 years have been animated films, and I mean... The Toy Story movies, I think, are, are terrific, and they should be classics, if not already considered classics. But other ones like Wally -E and Up, I, I love those movies as well. So I guess a lot of the Pixar, particularly, 
um, and some of the, I guess, a, a little more, let's say, grown-up ones, not the ones for little kids. Uh, so I, I've missed quite a few, but they make so many now. When I was a kid in the 70s, there were very few movies for kids because Walt Disney had died in you know, 66, and there was just nothing for a long stretch. And then it all heated up again in, in 1989 with The Little Mermaid, uh, which I remember liking very much. Uh, and that started off that uh, 10 years of those cartoons that were full sort of Broadway musicals as cartoons. And then it, it's been changing ever since constantly. But the number of films for kids, I mean, the Oscars had to come up with their own category for it because it was it becomes such a dominant force. Well, um, in my generation, uh, um Disney reissued the movies every seven years, Cinderella. Yeah. They almost had a schedule. Uh, sure. And, and uh, uh, now that we can buy the film and, uh, and have it, uh, 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 almost as soon as it runs over, you see the uh, buy the film, f uh, buy it for your own collection. Sure. Um, um, it, 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 you're kind of dispersing um, the shared experience. Um, uh, interesting. People have come on this show um, and talked about the fact that w we seldom now have shared experiences, even though we have many more ways of communicating shared experiences. But we don't yeah. have that personal touch. Uh, do yeah. you think mo movies lose that? Um, well, because the go ahead. Yeah, what you what you said made me think of, uh, like I said, my childhood in the 60s and the 70s when The Wizard of Oz was shown once a year, and you knew when you were watching it that every kid in America was watching it at exactly the same time. And they talk about it the next day at school, and that it was this magical thing that only appeared once a year, and then it was gone, and then it would live in your memory. And you're right now that we know that if you can buy almost anything at any time not only watch it by yourself and w without anybody else in terms of that collective experience but you can memorize it you can watch it 150 times and know every moment and it, it doesn't have quite that elusive magical feeling um like you said with uh with actually going to the theaters, there was that seven-year reissue thing with something like Gone with the Wind. It would come around maybe every seven years, but again, it was this magical experience that would vanish, and you knew it still existed somewhere, but you couldn't have that experience until they brought it back, and it, you're right, it made it so much more special. Um, and so I know exactly what you mean, because I'm old enough to have experienced it, and it's it, it's not the same. Um, even for me, as a, when I started to collect movies that I love, if, if you could watch it over and over, it, it does sort of, you know, it does sort of weaken things if you over-familiarize yourself. <laughs> and uh, so I, I know we, we definitely lost something, absolutely. Well, I have a friend who has over 7,000 uh, films on uh, the old uh, 16 or 32 mil, mil actually has wow. the reels and he's built a studio in his uh, place in Ellenville and we go up there once a month to watch old films wow. and the difference be between seeing them on TCM uh, and seeing them in person uh, sometimes I'll see the same movie in a, in a, ironically in, this, in a week 
and the, the theater experience to me is a much more of a fun experience than uh, uh, seeing it on TV. Uh, sure. Do you feel that way? Oh, yeah. There's nothing that can duplicate it. Um, this is nothing. Uh, I, you know, the size of the screen. Now, of course, we've lost a lot of the great uh, screens in terms of being able to see something on an enormous screen. That's become rarer as time has gone on. But, but there's still nothing quite like being in the dark, away from everything, and sort of getting lost in a movie. Because even when you're home and you're not answering the phone or getting up to go to the bathroom, you're still... It's still not the same. You can still be distracted in, in so many ways instead of just being lost, like I said, in the dark um, with a movie that's enormous. And uh, I, I love it. I mean, I, ideally, it's often I would like to be alone in a, in a giant movie theater so there's no, um, no distractions of any kind. But, you know, sometimes when it's a really funny comedy or something really scary, uh, you would love to see it with a packed house. So it's, you know, sometimes I'm in the mood for a lot of people, and sometimes I want to be uh, completely isolated. If you had to choose one movie to show on Christmas Day, what would it be? Well, um, not to repeat anything I've already mentioned, I might go with uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. It's a musical that I've always loved. I'm a big Judy Garland fan, and there's really nothing like... Uh, her singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, if you want sort of the quintessential um, Hollywood moment in terms of Christmas. Uh, it's a beautiful song, beautifully sung. It's a very touching scene. And uh, that might be sort of the epitome to me of the, of, the, of the sort of iconic Christmas moment from any movie I can think of. Well, let me ask you this. As we've moved away from what some people call the golden age of Hollywood. Do you think um, we won't get, will we ever get another classic that people, everybody will share with? Hmm. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's still, it can still happen, certainly. Um, the thing is, we're not always aware of what those are going to be. Sometimes it takes longer than we think. I always think about, you know, popular movies from the 30s, like the Universal Monster movies or even the Fred and Ginger musicals, very popular and beloved, but, you know, their reputation would increase with the years and people would appreciate not just the escapist elements and the enjoyment factor, but the actual art that went into them. And now they're regarded as, or at least by me anyway, <laughs> masterpieces. And certainly the film noir pictures, which were just, most of them were considered run-of-the-mill, and now people look at them with seriousness, and there are many terrific movies that got sort of lost in the shuffle in that genre. So I think there probably are movies, say, in the last 10 years that we will look back on, and that, like I said, we'll join that elite club of the ones that uh, are regarded, you know, by the culture as, you know, being great. But sometimes they're not the ones you think they're going to be. I mean, a good look at the list of the Academy Award winners of the last 85 years tells you that how wrong <laughs> they often were at the time in terms of figuring out what the best was in any given year. Sometimes it takes about 20 or 25 years for all that stuff to settle and the, and the real great ones to emerge as being great. Uh, 
John, um, your latest book for, for our audience, if they want to go uh, get it? Yeah, I'd say the, um, it would be this revised edition of my first book, actually, And You Thought You Knew Classic Movies, which I said is like a stock pit stocking stuffer for the holidays. Um, it's the film trivia quiz book. And the one most recent in terms of uh, being the actual newest one was from last year, Screensavers 2, which is subtitled My Grab Bag of Classic Movies. But if you look me up on Amazon, just my name, D-I-L-E-O, all the titles come up. Well, uh, uh, John, thank you for joining us on this holiday, and uh, I hope you have a great one. You too. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Our next guest is someone I've been looking forward to talking about this, Robert Frump. Bob is an author, journalist, and corporate content strategic consultant whose career has spanned 46 years. His articles for the Philadelphia Inquirer were recognized with a Loeb and a Polk Award, and he served as a member of an Inquirer Pulitzer Prize writing team. He served as managing editor of the Knight Ritter's Journal of Commerce before moving into financial publishing. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Good to be with you. Well, uh, Bob, I wanted to talk about writing today. Um, I, I consider you one of the better writers that I've seen. But first, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and a couple of the books that you've written, which I, haven't found, which I have right here. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and your books. Sure. Um, I, um, I, I grew up in a small Illinois farm town, and um, for, for whatever reasons, uh, at, a, at a pretty early age, um, just assumed that I would in some way or another be a writer. Um, that uh, carried through to uh, a, a career in uh, journalism, and uh, uh, eventually uh, led me to writing uh, in, in long form. And uh, the, uh, the books that I've written, uh, two of them tend to, uh, to focus on uh, uh, shipwrecks, uh, the uh, merchant marine, uh, at-sea rescues. Uh, a, a third book uh, is uh, uh, a little off-topic for me, but uh, was fascinating to write and research was uh, about uh, human-animal conflict in Kruger National Park in South Africa and uh, what apartheid policies uh, meant to uh, Mozambican refugees who encountered lions in the, in the park. Um, so it's been a, a pretty uh, varied, uh, a varied career, but, but one that writing has underpinned. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about writing for our audience. Um, what do you think are the key elements to, to learning how to write well? Well, I think uh, I think a lot of it is uh, what I would have called time on the on the typewriter. I guess it would be called just um, keyboarding uh, these days. But uh, I mean, early on, that was a uh, it, it sounds like a very, very simple, simple thing, and, and eventually it does become simple. But when you're just starting out, you, you really do have all of these uh, muscle memory uh, 
connections to make with uh, with your with your fingers and your mind and everything else. So uh, if if you're if you're just starting out and uh, uh, or, or feeling frustration with that, almost almost everyone else has too. I think who's ever ventured into this business. Uh, I, I think it's important to have as clear a focus on on the outcome of your writing as you're as you're going into it, uh, to have an idea of what you want coming out of it, uh, what you want people to think or or feel. Uh, that's for for fiction or nonfiction, and if if you have that in your mind ahead of time. Uh, I, I think that's very helpful. Well, um, that's a very good point. Uh, we're both newspaper men, and uh, I don't know about you, but I had to. Uh, I thought I knew how to write when I started out, and quickly learned that I didn't. Um, uh, how do you feel? Um, how do you? How does one start to uh, learn how to write? Uh, um, so you get your ideas across. I know it's a tough question, but um, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm never uh, I'm, I'm never afraid to to revise. And um, uh, I I I think as you're as you're starting out, you, uh, uh, you you shouldn't get too frustrated if you're if you find that it just doesn't fly off the uh, the tip of your tongue or the tip of your fingers. Uh, you you have to take sometimes a, a number of shots at it. Uh, if I'm in a place where I'm not, I don't feel that it's coming off my fingers the way that it should. Uh, I'll uh, I'll do my best to get through uh, what it is I'm trying to do, uh, and then just give it a rest. Uh, there was a there was a time in my youth where I'd. Uh, I just grit my teeth and and think that I had to go through it. So I would, you know, stay up till 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. even have sleepless nights, and eventually um, found that it's 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 much better to just do what you can, let it sit overnight. Sometimes the next day it's um, you know it's there for you. Well, that's exactly what I do. If I uh, I, I try to read it in the clear light of day. Then realize uh, I don't know about you, but I say, "Oh my God, did I really write that uh, trash?" Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, uh, let let's talk a little bit about writing a book. Every, every you know, you, you can't run into somebody who says, "I wish I could write, uh, wish I could write a book," uh, and, and if I uh, I have so much experience, what are what are the, the things you've learned writing a book? Well, one is again uh, to to um, it, at the beginning, it's good to know where you're ending up. If if you have the if you have the direction, uh, if you know what the what the end is of your story, what you want people to know, what you want people to think, uh, what it is that you found in total. If you can hold that in your uh, in your mind, uh, then it's uh, it's it's much easier to do the uh, the start uh, and the and the middle sort of follows along. Um, 
I mean, that's a little, that's a little glib, but um, I, I found that I find that that, that, that is the, um, uh, that, that that's at least what works best for me. Is if you if you keep that endpoint in mind, if you know what that is, then you can write with confidence toward it. Um, each chapter then can be structured so that you have a flow to your story, uh, you know, of successes and failures of whoever's in the whoever's in the story. Uh, I write in a narrative fashion. Uh, I, I tell stories in nonfiction, um, and um, uh, I find that's 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 the way I naturally write. I also think it's a, a way that people naturally learn. Uh, so for for the way that I write, that's how that's how it works best for me. Well, I, I wish I had talked to you before I started my book. Uh, <laughs> well, you're, you're a great you're a great Don. I I think you you well, certainly uh, knew it at some level. Yeah, but it took three revisions before I. I rewrote the first part of it three times. Um, and people shouldn't be afraid to rewrite. They shouldn't hold their words to be uh, sacrosanct. Am I right? Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I, the other thing that I found out that's very, um, it's very hard for a writer to do, particularly if you're doing nonfiction and you put a lot of, of uh, shoe leather into research and you found some really great facts, uh, you, you know what I've learned from some really good editors is there are things that you need to let go of and leave out of the book. Uh, you, you need to be you need to be considerate of the story you're telling and the narrative and the flow of it. Um, my challenge there, and the same for others, I think, is that um, you get invested in the research that you've done, or the, or you get invested in a particularly good piece of writing that you've done, but it still doesn't really fit in. Um, a, a good example of that, I think, was in my first book, uh, which is called Until the Sea Shall Free Them. I had a very long part in there. Um, Until the Sea Shall Free Them was a story about the wreck of the SS Marine Electric in 1983 and all of the uh, issues and safety inspection and trial issues that that flowed from this wreck where three men survived. And I was attempting to show uh, during a Coast Guard rescue um, just how how dedicated some of these rescuers are. So I had a long 60-page passage in there about an earlier 1952 rescue. And uh, an editor who I asked to to take a look at the book um, enjoyed the book a great deal, but he said, you know, this should... This should come out. It's another book. It doesn't belong in this book. And eventually, that's that's what I did. I lifted that part out, finished until the sea shall free them, and then five or six years later, wrote my third book, which is called Two Tankers Down, about this 1952 rescue. Um, so that's that's an important. Uh, you need to know. It's somewhat like chess. You need to know when to sacrifice certain certain elements so that other elements can can gain the upper hand and win. Well, your your book, your first book was about a, a fishing boat, if I recall, that went down off the Jersey coast. Am I right? Yes. Oil, oil tanker, yes. Or, uh, I'm sorry, coal carrier. Um, uh-huh. 
and uh, all the problems. But let's go to your book about Africa because uh, uh, people should know a little about it. Uh, you, you said, um, tell them a little bit more about it, uh, that these people were trying to escape and they were, became prey of lions. So uh, tell them a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, the name of that book is The Man-Eaters of uh, Eden, uh, which refers to Cougar National Park, which is known as the, uh, as the Eden of South Africa. It's a marvelous uh, wild park about the size of Massachusetts. And um, there are you know, tens of thousands of uh, wildlife wandering free there, including uh, a really healthy uh, population of, uh, of African lions. Uh, I sort of stumbled across it when we were visiting uh, friends in South Africa, and uh, we went to uh, uh, safaris near Kruger, and uh, we'd see lions, and we'd ask them, we'd ask our uh, our guide whether there were any problems with people, because we were so incredibly close to them within 10 feet, and they would always answer, "Not here, but in Kruger they have problems." Uh, and uh, if you pushed it a little bit, they would they would sort of go into their their tourist bureau mode and not not answer you more. But I found a few folks who who were were telling me the uh, the, the truth of Kruger was that you know there are hundreds of deaths uh, uh, that were occurring there. The um, the old apartheid regime uh, in attempt to con- control immigration fenced off the borders, including uh, around Kruger. And Mozambicans who had worked in the diamond mines and the gold mines for years still needed to come over to get to work. So they could no longer come over in the daytime because of the security and the immigration controls. So instead, they sneaked across in nighttime. Well, the nighttime is also the time when lions, they're they're, uh, nighttime uh, hunters. Uh, for the for the most part, and so the lions learned to uh, capture and uh, uh, and feed on on humans. They became a a prime prey um, uh, f- for them, just like antelope or or buffalo, uh, just a, a lot easier to to catch. And it it has been going on for years. It continues to this day. Uh, more with refugees from Zimbabwe now, but it's uh, it's a huge problem, and they really they really freely admit that they can't they can't control it. Um, I mean, it's a pretty uh, pretty gruesome uh, a pretty gruesome situation in some respects, but it also illustrates the the sort of uh, funny balance that we have these days between the human species and, and wildlife. It's not a story that most conservationists want to, to be to have told, yet it needs to be told if, if for no other reason there are there are human lives at stake. And, and it's called again, the Man Eaters of Eden. Well, uh, let's go. Uh, you heard about something and you went out and found it. Um, uh, people, what's the best way of finding subjects? To write about, they say your first book, book is always autobiographical. But what are what are the ways of finding, them? and and how do you go about researching? Well, I think um, 
I I think if you're if you're talking about nonfiction, uh, I mean there's a couple of uh, of different approaches there. If you're um, uh, if if you're a journalist, if you're uh, you know a newspaper person as, as you and I are, um, you're you're sort of tuned to what a uh, a story is and what questions might might be asked. Um, the the difference between a news story and long form journalism in long magazine piece or um, uh, or, or or a book is 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 really you know how many how many uh, how much information is available how uh, how how lengthy should the can the story be should the story be can you can you really add something to the story by uh, uh, by researching and, 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 and digging into it? And so, for my case, if there are if there are major questions about um, safety or major questions about life uh, and death in Cougar National Park that aren't easy questions to answer, then to me that's a long form that's a long form book. Something that's fairly easy to answer is a is a news article or or a magazine story. Uh, if you're not, uh, you, you know, if you're not as as we are, sort of professionally accustomed to that sort of, of work, then I I would say just you know look to your look to your interests. Um, you had a previous uh, guest on who who specialized in. Uh, uh, you know, forgotten masterpieces of Hollywood, for example, and and that's a that's a different play on uh, you know books about Hollywood. Um, if you have an interest in vegetables, you know, perhaps you have a, a gardening book that's that's to be done about a particular uh, type of gardening. Um, it's uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, mono uh, subject books now, like salt. You know, there's an amazing uh, am- amount of information about the history of uh, salt in the world. Or uh, another one was cod and codfish. Uh, in in those cases, uh, I, I think it's you just keep asking questions. If if you're com- if a if a topic compels you, and and you have more questions, ask them. And uh, that's that's really where your where your stories come from, or the un, or the unanswered questions that that you have, and and one hopes a, a reader will have as well. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, many years ago, a woman came to me with a book about um, uh, what you plant to prevent deer from eating your plants. Ah, yes. And, uh, the, that book is 16 years old, and it still sells. I'm sure. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, she wrote the manuscript, by the way, in hand, and we had to transcribe it. Yes. Uh, uh, but anyway, you know, it's. Uh, uh, I couldn't resist. Uh, you know, we say uh, we're both newspaper men. I'm sure you've been accused of writing fiction in newspapers. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. You know, no matter yeah. how... Uh, you know, no matter how uh, how uh, careful you are, someone always finds it. Um, yeah. Which brings you, brings me to my next question: um, How do you, uh, how do you um, uh, 
accept the fact that other people should read it and give you honest criticism. Um, I, uh, I, I think that, um, I think that it's a neat, I think that it's a neat trick. Um, I think you have to have the self-confidence and the arrogance uh, to think that you can write something uh, that will be compelling uh, at a fairly great length. And um, uh, I, I, I think that if you're constantly second-guessing yourself on that or asking for uh, too much help or criticism along the way, uh, then then you're in in something of uh, of, a, of trouble and a, a sort of writer's vapor lock. I, I mention this because I, I I know a lot of young writers who I think are really wonderful writers, and they get absorbed into these writer workshops where they um, they sit around writing things every uh, every week, and then the the writer workshops picks them apart and discusses them. Um, I, I think, uh, I mean, I did those back in college, and I think they can be, I think they can be helpful, but they can be an end in itself, where you're just. Um, there's an old New Yorker's cartoon that that uh, two two young students are walking down the street, and uh, uh, the the one says, "My writing professor uh, in workshop says I should write about what I know, but all I know is writers' workshops." And I, I think that can be, uh, I think that can be a problem. Once I'm done and I and I and I think I'm set, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll inevitably uh, be shocked at, that anyone would want to change my stuff. I'll be angry uh, for a short period of time, and then I'll wake up the next day and, and generally think, well, of course they're right here. Of course they're right here. This one I'm not sure of. So, you know, it you, you need to be appropriately brash and arrogant uh, at one point, and then find editors who you trust, uh, and then uh, and then go from there. Most editors' advice I'm glad that I accepted. There are, uh, you know, two or three stories I can <laughs> I can remember from 20 years ago that I'm still angry that I gave up a. Uh, a a lead or a particular passage or or something like that, but editors have saved me far lo- far more than they've uh, than they've heard. Uh, me. A, a good editor will make you great. I have on my desk a, a picture of me leaning over as a young man leaning over the desk of, of an editor named Al Depoto, who really taught me how to write. Uh, and his favorite expression was, "Remember, tomorrow every, everything you write is used to write, wrap tomorrow's leftover fish just uh-huh. before it goes." Up. Garbage can, and you know, I have an ego when it comes to writing. But uh, uh, I, I've, I've learned over the years that a good editor will make you great. Uh, it's finding the editors, and, uh, and it's finding someone who, who I think is honest with you, uh, exactly. who's, who's trying to help. Exactly. Uh, um, if you had to summarize. You know, you've had a long career. Uh, I have too. Uh, what are the three things in writing that you you really take to heart? And when you sit down at that keyboard, uh, th- think about 
before you put a, the first words down? Uh, it'll it, it'll probably sound uh, uh, arrogant, uh, uh, but uh, truth certainly is at the top of the list. Um, I don't think there's um, uh, I don't think there's much. If, if you're writing journalistically, or if you're writing, uh, uh, you know, serious uh, uh, fiction, if if you don't have that orientation as your as your as your first goal, I I don't I don't know why you're doing it. Um, if uh, uh, if if you don't have the idea that the things that you are writing can be counted on by people. Uh, or experienced by them as as either an emotional or a practical or a, or a real world to truth, uh, or even a spiritual truth for that matter. Uh, I don't know why you'd be doing it. Um, that said, you also need to be very uh, uh, very very practical and in, in, in forgiving with yourself uh, in terms of the process of of getting it all down. If you're if you're constantly kicking yourself in the butt that you haven't quite achieved the perfect sentence, uh, you'll never get good sentences. If you can get good sentences down, you can you can grow them and edit them into into great sentences. But if if you get into a uh, a vapor lock uh, uh, or uh, you know or a writer's block or or too much self doubt you'll never get through there uh, and so the along with that the third thing would be plow on through just plow on through if you're writing badly one day you know finish the allotted hours or the allotted space that you're um, that that you're shooting for you know you can always go back to it you can always change it. Uh, a lot of a lot of times, if you're writing badly, you haven't researched it, or you haven't know you don't know your subject well enough, and and so you can't write well about it. That's if if you find yourself writing badly about something. Uh, oftentimes, I find in my in my own experience, it's because I I don't have the knowledge that I should about that particular topic. Or in some way, I'm hesitant and I'm shading my words uh, because I don't I don't truly, particularly know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so that's a that's a good sign that you need to go back and research or or to check whether it belongs in what you're in your right what you're writing. It might be part of another story. You might be trying to tell too much. Hmm. Uh, are you working on anything now? Uh, I've got a few uh, a, a few topics. Uh, I've uh, I've got a uh, second African book that's uh, about uh, lions in in Tanzania who make the uh, lions of Kruger look like uh, house cats. Um, so I'm I'm working that with a with a publisher now. Uh, I've also got a maritime uh, possibility uh, about a. Uh, uh, a World War II cargo ship that was uh, that encountered a uh, a German raider during uh, during World War II with a with an interesting outcome. Well, that's exciting. Well, I hope you'll come back again 
I, I love more you. about writing. I learned a lot. Uh, well, I, I uh, admire your writing as well, as you know. Well, I appreciate it. Coming from you, that's high praise. Uh, again, thank you for joining us on this holiday uh, night, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Happy holidays. That's our program for tonight. It's a special program, and we hope you all enjoyed it. Until next time, this is Don Mazzella. Have a happy holiday.